Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 142. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me in the studio today, we have another guest, Sharnell Bush. Hey, how goes it? It's going well, and it's great to have you on. So today, we're going to be talking about the phrase, get your mind out of the gutter, of course, talking about how bringing up sexual comments or making otherwise mundane comments into sexual remarks or jokes is often frowned upon in our culture, in our society, which I think speaks a lot to our tendencies, to our preferences, to what we think is acceptable. And as a first question to you, I'd be very curious to know what you think that phrase implies, why the gutter is this dark place where our mind can go, and why we associate sexual language or any implications of sexuality in our conversations with the gutter. I think it's because sex is seen as this kind of morally corrupt runoff, and that's where people collect trash and sewage and whatnot. It's supposed to keep people from wanting to engage in sex because they want you to be fearful of it. And the more you're informed of something, the more you want to talk about it, the more freely you speak about something, the more comfortable you become with it. And so it kind of paints a different picture, especially if we're talking about older conservative folks who are raising younger children. I think that was really well said, and especially in the context of elders raising younger people, I can acknowledge that while I personally believe sexuality should be discussed more often as it pertains to various elements of our lives and often to most of our romantic encounters, I do recognize, of course, that there is an age limit. There is a moment of appropriate discourse when otherwise sexuality shouldn't be discussed because it isn't relevant, and I can acknowledge that it would have an effect on how someone sees things And I do think with the association of gutters and sewage and runoff that we don't want to be thinking about as people, it is unfortunate that then sex takes on this form of corruption and filth because certainly anything in excess, and I mean virtually anything, can be damaging and problematic, can destroy your relationships with people and even detach you from yourself and what you truly aspire to be as an ever-developing person. But I do think in America, where we are actually very uncomfortable with sex and sexuality, despite the frequency with which they appear in our media, that talking about sex and sexuality, were we to gradually, in whatever fumbling, stumbling, awkward way, talk about it more, we would develop better, healthier understandings of how sex and sexuality operate in our lives. But instead, as I perceive it, we pursue this rather immature way of plastering sex on various commercial items and in various settings where it doesn't necessarily belong because the fundamental desire to be sexual beings, to discuss and express sexuality more openly, still persists, but we recognize in a social context that we aren't allowed to discuss it, and I think that frustration manifests in inappropriate or poorly timed sexual remarks. And I'd really love to know what you think about any of that. I think that America, in terms of dealing with sex and sexuality, kind of follows the whole old school, do as I say, not as I do thing. We'll show you sex. We'll show you what sex, I guess, would look like or should look like. But we don't want you to ask questions about why sex looks like that or why you feel the way you do when you look at such sexual images and whatnot. I think that we approach it in a very immature way. I think that we would have healthier, more positive sexual experiences and conversations concerning it if we were just to address it and confront it right on. Me personally, I have a lot of very open, very confident and positive, responsible conversations regarding sex because I think it is important. And it's also important to understand that at younger ages, it might be because of the field I work in and the work I do outside of my job. 
that sometimes sex is relevant for kids who are younger. And I've had to have conversations about sex with kids who are abuse survivors. So I have to sit down and have conversations with them. And some of them are very clinical in the sense. Some of them are also very lax and laid back where you have to be for kids who are a little less forthcoming with information. When you're responsible, when you talk about sex, I think that you could definitely open up people's eyes and not only that, but kind of take away the bad stigma that comes with it. And I think stigma is really huge there. And I'm so happy that you bring up sexual assault or sexual abuse survivors, because if we stigmatize sexual language in virtually any forms and in most contexts outside of certain intimate friendships or actual sexual relationships, a young child who we may have agreed as a society is never supposed to discuss sex or sexuality will necessarily lack the language to report something that they absolutely experienced, can recall, and would like to bring to someone's attention. And I think that reflects our discomfort as a nation and as a culture in that we cannot talk about these things and so we shrug it off or laugh about it because in a widespread fascination with sex, it's in poetry and various other forms of art because it does fascinate us as a species, we have, I think, lost, at least in a mainstream sense, the ability to reflect on it and treat it almost as a mundane topic. And I think in keeping it as this almost exotic idea, we don't learn more, we don't develop a better vocabulary to discuss it, and even in a selfish or more personal sense for each individual who may have sexual tendencies or preferences they would like to better understand, their lives as sexual beings will not flourish as much as they could were we to champion sexuality as a healthy element in many of our lives and identities. And I absolutely understand it varies from person to person, and the proportions of sexual interests to other interests are not always the same. But I do think a number of our concerns as a culture simply come from lack of understanding that sex, oddly enough, remains this unknown when People are having sex, and sex is incredibly widespread in terms of human activity, and yet we don't talk about it. And to me, there is this cognitive dissonance there. But I've also thought in preparing for this discussion that perhaps we insert innuendo where it does not otherwise occur, because deep down, we do want to talk about sex and sexuality and recognize that we may have to construct those contexts if they are not otherwise presented to us in the appropriate forum. And I'd really love to know what you think about this idea of sexual language and verbal expression of sexual thoughts or interests as a form of social liberation, of speaking back to this culture of sexual repression in language. And I would, of course, extend that beyond language, but for the sake of this conversation, linguistically speaking. I think it's funny that you bring up social liberation because I identify as queer. It's one of the things that I kind of run with on a day-to-day level. And in the queer community, sex is usually spoken about a lot more openly because we don't technically have to adhere to social norms because we are socially abnormal still. No matter what legislation gets passed, we are still others. And I think that that gives us freedom to talk about things. So in that context, I'm kind of out of the loop. But I would say that having healthy sex conversations, I learned a lot about sex because people were just inserting things in the conversations. And I would pick things up and say, well, I'm sorry, I don't know what that means. Or how would you use that? Why do you use that? People do that. And when you ask those questions, whether you Google it when you get home in your secret closets where you Google all your naughty things, or if you're out with your friends and you genuinely want to start a conversation about it, I think that you can. 
I know a lot of people who don't identify as queer who will make gay sex jokes with me as a way to open up the door to have those conversations because they wouldn't want to outright ask me those questions for fear of sounding offensive or prying. But again, identifying as queer, I'm very open and I'm very open with the people I care about who want to know what I'm doing. And that kind of comes with being a young gay man. It's easier to say those things because we tend to have those kind of sexual adventures or exploration periods, especially if we come out in our college years where we're not really sure how to operate or navigate those spaces. So that's when conversations are important. But also when we're younger and not having sex education that is relevant to our sex lives, we have to have those conversations. You spoke about on a previous episode how we learn about sex. Back in sex ed in high school, no one taught me about having sexual relations with men. They talked in a very heteronormative way that they assumed I was going to be penetrating a vagina for the rest of my life and they didn't open those doors. And because of that, a lot of people have really unhealthy sexual relationships or experiences because they don't know how to react to things. They don't know how to safely prepare for things. So I think it's important to open those doors. And if you have to open those doors by throwing in, you know, a penis joke or laughing it off or making a sexuality joke, I think it's safe. And I think if you're with people that care about you, have at it. And I'm really glad that you bring up jokes with which we open dialogue because I've always felt that jokes are not just jokes. They are statements of personal belief or even personal curiosity where we test the waters with jokes to see who is in my in-group or out-group, who will understand the terms that I'm using, the feelings I'm trying to express. And in the same way that comedy and trying to engage people in a lighthearted way, I think, is rather universal, regardless of one's background or culture or language, many of us enjoy socializing in more casual environments. I would also argue that discussions or curiosity and interest in sex is its own universal language, even across lines of different sexual preferences, where, as a personal example, I identify as a heterosexual male, but I'd still be very curious to hear about other people's sexual experiences, thoughts, feelings, etc., because to me, they represent part of the human experience. And I know that there are these associations with sex as dirty or base or vile, etc., ergo the use of the word gutter. But I do think, especially in a time in the world where we are starved for empathy and understanding, that you may not think empathy will come from discussing sex or sexuality, but I do think for many people, however private it may be, it is a pillar of sorts in their identity that is worth, at the very least, acknowledging and opening the door for conversation so that the option is present. And of course, I would never encourage forcing that dialogue, but I again anecdotally can speak to the fact that in recent months of my life, my curiosity has pushed me to ask friends about some of their sexual encounters or preferences for the sake of learning. And I think the key, if you are willing to have those discussions, as you've also said, is to be open about it and be respectful so that you are not closing those doors and indicating to people that their vulnerabilities will be judged. But I also recognize that people feel very differently about this, and at the risk of staying on the anecdotal line, I'd really love to know, in your life, if you've had encounters where your comfort in talking about sex and sexuality has brushed up against or even clashed with people around you who have openly said that's not okay to talk about, or perhaps that they even felt disrespected by your remarks or interest in talking about the topic. You pretty much hit the nail on the head. I do a lot of work with a youth group that's based out of a church. And because of my background in social work and a lot of community work, I come across a lot of 
compromising sexual situations with the people I work with and understanding that youth have a very complicated relationship with sex and consent and understanding empathy. Sexual empathy is a real thing, too. Though some of the kids will have questions and some of the kids have come out as gay. Some of the kids have come out as trans. And there's a whole host of questions that they have. And a lot of people, especially people who grew up in the church, grew up very religious, who grew up believing that abstinence was the way to go. I definitely do not agree with that. We'll keep them silent or say that's a question for your parents or that's a question for another youth pastor or something. And I had a kid in my youth group who needed transportation home late one night, young high school age, had his first experience with drinking, had his first experience with sex that night. And as kind of almost flattering as it is that they call you or called me with that, I had to bring that to the other leaders in the youth group. And I was very forthcoming with the information, very forward. I didn't pull any punches. And I said, you know, this kid had this sexual experience and I had this conversation with him. I told him it was very healthy that he did it. He was very safe and responsible with it. And I told him that next time maybe he should pick the person better and it shouldn't be such an impulsive reaction. And one of the things that came up was that it wasn't my place. And because we are faith-based, that we should incorporate God in the conversation. And I think that it's really important, especially for kids, to understand that, yeah, if you believe in God, that God does have a place in your sex life, but you also need to be humanized in that understanding where your connection with humans are. Because he didn't have real sex education, he didn't understand consent. He didn't understand that because he had been drinking, that someone who is sober using him for sex is not okay, even if he enjoyed it. You're not able to give consent. And so I have to balance the secular side of myself and the Christian side of myself. And they were not happy that I led with the secular side because my first response was to make sure he was healthy, make sure that he was safe and that he felt safe and that no one took advantage of him. And that was frowned upon, which I thought was strange. And it's really key that you bring up sexual education because it is absolutely a part of how we talk about sex and sexuality. And I would even contend that any conversation about sex or sexuality has the potential to be educational. When you're younger and have not had those sexual experiences, you're learning about what an adult relationship will look like, what consent looks like, what respect looks like, and perhaps what your preferences, attitudes, etc. might look like in the future. But even in my conversations with friends of mine, the perspectives I've learned and gained through those dialogues have been incredibly helpful. And to me, the most fascinating element there is that it is in many ways such a fresh topic for me that I have not had those conversations with friends so openly that in many ways the novelty alone of discussing those topics with friends is interesting and engaging. And as someone who's curious, I'm also excited to learn new things from different people. But even in relationships, I wonder if certain adults who have at no point reconciled their own sexuality and sexual feelings enter into monogamous relationships and have sexual partners for decades with whom they don't have discussions about sexual preferences, ideas, curiosity to experiment, etc. And it's not necessarily that they are losing anything, but insofar as sex, when consensual, positive, and respectful, can be an amazing way of connecting with and understanding another person, it does sadden me that in cultures with rather repressed sexual language where we treat sexuality as this topic that would fall into the gutter, we lose so much, I feel, in our ability to understand others and appreciate what they are going through. And another thought I would love to pose to you that occurred to me in preparation for the episode, 
I wondered if one reason that we see such consistent use of sexualized jokes or innuendo injected into conversation is because we can all identify on a very conscious level that we live, I would say increasingly, in a more competitive and often rather antisocial world where we have our own bubbles and we don't necessarily want to talk to strangers. And introducing sex or sexuality presents this topic that can refer to a number of social and often cooperative behaviors, again, under the circumstances of consensual relationships, and of course, in this case, I suppose accepting topics like masturbation and other expressions of sexuality. Do you think there's any validity to that idea, which I suppose ties back to the concept of expressions of sexuality as social liberation? Sex can definitely be used to find common ground among strangers or amongst groups of friends that really don't know each other well. And I think because a lot of people are engaging in sexual activities, it opens up a door to where people kind of humanize you. You seem more real and accessible in that you seem more free. And people tend to react to people who are receptive and embracing and affirming than they do to people who are closed off to any idea of something that they may not be comfortable because they themselves don't have the vocabulary to have those conversations. So I would agree there is validity in that. I've used sex to open doors. I've used sex to open dialogue in bars. I've used it to open dialogues at churches. I've done it at beaches. It's just, it's easier, but it also has to come from a place, I don't want to say dignified place, but it has to come from a safe place. It has to come from a place where you're not forcing the conversation about sex because sex talk, especially for people who have had experiences with sex that weren't as, you know, fun, weren't as exciting and weren't as safe to understand the temperature of a room you're in. But I would, I would agree if you are amongst people your age or peers, or even like me with your with family, if you want to make those jokes to kind of let people know that I am actually a person, I have experiences, and I'm willing to share them if you're willing to listen. And we can probably relate on those topics. And your remark about the temperature of the room, I think, is key because I would contend as the temperature of our society, so to speak, continues to be largely negative and restrictive towards topics of sex it goes untalked about. And I think a number of unhealthy circumstances and incidents surrounding sex and sexuality will remain and perhaps increase should we continue to feel this discomfort in talking about it. And that's not to say that I have the solution, but I do think finding a way to be more comfortable and respectful in discussing it would help because to me the prevalence of sexual jokes and sexual comments, though at times I have felt they are very easy to make, I do think reflect a shared mentality that many of us have in which we are constantly or with some frequency thinking about the topic. And I also wonder if perhaps we associate it with the gutter because we don't want to talk about it. The gutter is not only where refuse and sewage might fall, but where also we don't have to pay as much attention. It's not a well-lit area, and it's an area where perhaps few people can tread to clean it out occasionally, but otherwise need not be discussed. And I think in many ways it's because of the associations we have with sex and sexuality as dictated primarily by negative attitudes because there have certainly been pop icons and other figures in the public sphere who have championed healthy and consensual respectful attitudes that were very expressive and experimental in certain ways encouraging individuality and self-expression in a sexual context but they don't appear to have won over that battle and I do think that shame remains a very powerful factor 
when talking about sex and sexuality. And though I'm no psychologist, I imagine that leads to a number of moments of cognitive dissonance and inherent dissatisfaction with one's circumstances or sexual relationships because self-understanding has almost been prohibited by the society in which you live. And so I'd be really curious to know what you think about the route of hearing a sexual joke or a remark that seems to have been made more casually and approaching it with genuine interest and a desire to listen and perhaps tease out a longer conversation, do you think that's a way to help cultivate more dialogue surrounding the topics of sex and sexuality? I think that seeing those jokes made as statements and using them as a springboard to ask different questions, questions that you may be ignorant about and you would like to know. And I think in a lot of younger circles, That's actually how sex is learned. I said it earlier that when I was younger, that's how I learned a lot about sex is that I took those jokes as statements. I heard words I didn't understand. I heard verbs and activities that I was not aware were happening. And I genuinely wanted to know, how did you do that? Why are you doing that? Where do people do that? Is it safe to do that? And again, I think that the more people are aware of sex and how it's defined and what it looks like and how it feels, you get a better understanding of yourself. You learn what you like and learning how to be touched and learning how to touch other people is a huge part of connection. And so I think that gaining that information does set you up and benefit you to use that in life and build better, closer, more intimate relationships. Very well said. And before we close this episode, what would you like the audience to think about after listening to this discussion? Absolutely. I would like the listeners to think about how they learned about sex, where their ideas come from, any negative connotations about sex, whether it be church or school, where you taught about sex in a fearful context, where you taught about STIs and pregnancy, or where you taught that sex is a very healthy way to learn a lot about yourself and other people. And I would challenge them to go pick up a book, to go Google something they don't know about. And if you're curious, ask your friends and you may grow closer to your friends in those instances. I concur, and I'm especially happy that you brought up Google because I would encourage listeners, especially older listeners, to treat the young people in their lives with a greater degree of respect regarding understandings of sexual behavior and sexual preferences. I certainly have observed in my generation and those younger than me that the internet, although it is certainly full of a number of resources which are not always respectful, healthy, or well-informed, does contain a great deal of information that is well-researched and well-documented, which can help substantiate a much better and healthier understanding of one's sexuality, how to engage with the topic, and also how to discuss it, the language to use. And I do think that older generations who were not always as comfortable talking about sex and sexuality, which I do respect because of the cultural zeitgeist at the time, could learn a great deal from their younger peers. And as one of my heroes, who is actually a registered sexologist, Dr. Lindsay Doe, has said on her YouTube channel, Sexplanations, stay curious, because that's ultimately how people learn things, how we meet other people, and potentially, as you and I have both mentioned, Charnel, how people have very personal connections and conversations about topics like this, because it can represent a fundamental aspect of someone's personality and can teach you a great deal about other people. And Charnel, I'd of course like to thank you very much for coming on, but I would also encourage our listeners to check out your podcast, What About Your Friends, which I've always enjoyed for its authenticity and the ideas that you and your co-host Frankie present. And I'm really glad that we finally got to record together. I'm really excited that I got the chance to sit down with you as well. I've told you several times that you are a friend in my head, and now I kind of just feel like you're a friend. So it's just been pretty awesome. 
Well, the feeling is very mutual. But as ever, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. Ours are only two voices, and we would genuinely love to hear from you. So if you have any thoughts, comments, feelings, or opinions of any kind, please feel free to reach out to us. You can connect with us via Twitter or Facebook, where if you like our page, you'll receive weekly updates when we post new episodes. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to as well as reviewing the show and sharing it with a friend you think might enjoy it or get something out of it. And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off.